0: Episode 377, Specialty Pharmacy, PBM Hospital, Employer, and Pharma Strategic Maneuvering. Today, I speak with Mike Baldzicki.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value.
0: Members taking specialty drugs represents about 2 percent of any given employer's population, but often consume as much as 30 percent of an employer's total cost of care. As Promote John in episode 353 has said, this isn't just small companies we're talking about here. Some of the largest employers in the U.S. are dropping big bucks on specialty drugs, and they are obviously overpaying and don't need to no employer or plan really need pay any more than the pharmacy's acquisition price plus a reasonable professional fee. But so many employers pay way more than that. Let's just keep in mind that specialty pharmacy spend extends beyond just pharmacy spend. Medical claims for pharma drugs that are infused, for example, can be more than 50 percent of an employer or plan's specialty pharmacy spend. What I'm talking about now is buy and bill type stuff where a hospital or physician practice bills for an infused pharmaceutical product under a patient's medical benefit. Listen to episode 370 with Autumn Yangchu Chu and Eric Davis about how some hospitals, for example, are managing to charge employers 6x the cost of specialty meds to infuse them and also the show 365, episode 365 with Scott Haas about PBM shenanigans. So currently, specialty pharmacy spend is Big, but it's growing bigger every single year. Every year, employers and the government slash taxpayers alike spend more and more on these really expensive drugs. So as you can see, there are billions and billions of dollars on the specialty pharmacy table here. Also, as you certainly know, if you've listened to the recent series of specialty pharmacy shows that we've done lately, link in the show notes to a playlist, it's kind of a war out there. There are multiple healthcare industry stakeholders trying to capture all of the money. If you can get your hands on a specialty pharmacy patient and manage their care, or probably more pointedly, manage to bill for their care, it can be incredibly profitable. Today's show kind of wraps up some loose ends for me. Today, I'm speaking with Mike Baldzicki, who is chief brand officer over at Acela Health. A majority of Mike's background is in specialty pharmacy infusion capabilities with an array of different healthcare companies, so he's a great guy to wrap up some of these loose ends with. On the show today, we discuss how many the percentage of self-funded employers who have taken their specialty pharmacy business from the big three or big five PBMs, how many of them have actively started steering their members and managing their benefit carefully. I talk with Mike about what these employers are doing and how they are doing it. From there, the conversation, of course, naturally flows into preventing hospitals from rapaciously buying and billing, which then segues into a discussion about hospital strategy. Because if you can't do your buy and bill thing for a whole bunch of your patients, then it makes sense for you to do two things strategically. Number one, stand up your own specialty pharmacy and or number two, set up your own network of infusion centers. Mike and I talk about this. We also discuss how much trying to get a specialty pharmacy drug sucks for most patients, which I deeply investigated in episode 352 with Olivia Webb. Link in the show notes. Also in this episode, you can hear me contend that maybe if pharma pharma and payers enter into outcomes-based contracts, maybe patients would be better served. It's kind of the pharmacy version of the whole let's pay for value, not volume thing. I asked Mike how many pharma outcomes-based contracts are out there in the wild for reals. All of this and more, but you got to listen to the podcast. Oh, by the way, acronym alert, SPP stands for Specialty Pharmacy Provider. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Mike Baldzicki, welcome to Relentless Health Value.
1: Thanks, Stacey. Happy to be here
0: today. 60% of workers work for a self-funded employer who has hired some sort of a TPA, third-party administrator to manage their benefits, correct? You're right. ASO, administrative services only... ASOs are a special kind of TPA owned by these big insurance carrier entities. So like, for example, Cigna has their own crew who is providing ASO services to self-funded employers. This gets interesting in a hurry because this means that the ASO reports to the same leadership and shareholders as, for example, the PBM, which is also owned by that same entity. And furthermore, in that same sprawling organization, they own a specialty pharmacy. And therefore, there are some very weird, perverse incentives, which maybe is the wake-up call for some of these employers. And I'm speculating here, because if you run the PPM and you run the insurer and you run the specialty pharmacy, then it is a conflict of incentives to... Worry about the cost of a million dollar specialty pharmaceutical, right? Because, like, as the pharmacy, you're making money. As the insurer, maybe you're not. As the PBM, you're taking the rebate, right? Like, do I have that right?
1: You're right. You know, the United Healthcare is the Cigna's, the Aetna's, they own their own specialty pharmacy. They own their own prior authorization company. They own a, a slew of other medication management companies that fold into the overall manage it of the benefit and what we're seeing particularly if you even follow the broker world like locked in wheels towers watson marsh mclaren they are now getting feedback from their mid-market health plans usually two million lives or less or their tp employer sponsor group saying enough is enough my specialty medical benefit spend is not slowing down the typical way or model at whatever you want to verbalize it going to my typical PBM that does everything is not working. So I have to find a vendor alternative to manage this spend. And now we're seeing in the last particularly three years, this really huge uptake of really does it make sense to carve up my specialty pharmacy benefit or medical benefit away from my typical PBM model. And I think the answer is yes. And again, dependent on what you're looking at from that plan sponsor.
0: So kind of conflicts of interest all over the place when you have entities who are supposed to be checking and balancing each other, all contributing to the same balance sheet. Now, you said there's uptake amongst employers here to kind of go off the reservation and not use the big PBMs. What's the trend line there? Like, what does the rate of increase of not using the big PBMs look like?
1: When you look at the PBM market, the three big PBMs control 80% of overall lives, commercial, Medicare, Medicaid. No one really has a good scale of that because how they're managed on the claim side.
0: So what I'm understanding you say is that it's tough to really do the math to determine who has the business, because as we've talked about in previous episodes, we'll put links in the show notes, specialty pharmacy products might get charged for through medical claims, not pharmacy claims. So a hospital, for example, might infuse the product in the hospital and then bill for it as part of their medical claim. This is called buy-in bill. And when they do that, the data gets messy from what I'm understanding. But let's just stick with drugs and the pharmacy claim bucket for now. And you're saying that about 20% of these claims are not managed by a big three, big five, PBM. So this is my question, how, if we're talking about getting the best price for a plan sponsor here, how does a non-enormous PBM or SPP entity negotiate or contract with pharma? One of the things that we hear often is that it requires the size and scale of some of these massive entities to get the size rebate that they can manage to capture because they control access to literally millions and millions of lives. So if, if I'm a smaller entity and I just want a good net price, am I able to get it or do I wind up actually paying more up front, but there's so many fees and weird perverse incentives and administrative fees and clinical program fees and, and whatnot. We just had Scott Haas on the show that said on average, a plan sponsor gets back about 40 cents for every dollar in, you know, air quotes rebates that a PBM takes from a pharma manufacturer. In general, are these smaller entities able to get the same net price as a gigantic PBM? Yeah. You know, ask me
1: that five years ago, I would say no. Today's landscape that we're seeing disruptors in healthcare is two folds of points I'm going to make. One, You know, it still goes down to the volume of what you're servicing from a claim side. But these companies like life science companies, pharmaceutical companies are looking for innovative solutions around this. Because if I'm a a life science company coming out with a rare disease product, my net margin is only going to be a couple hundred million dollars. I can't go out to the big boys to discount and play the rebate game. It will kill my bottom line. So now we're seeing very exclusive specialty pharmacy network management arrangements with these type of organizations to companies like Opnicare. I mean, our parent company, Opnicare is a rare disease specialty pharmacy. We're, we have exclusive rights to certain products, but our, again, our net discounts can play ball with the normal PBM. I call gorillas out there in the marketplace.
0: So that's interesting that some of this might actually be pharma manufacturer driven.
1: That absolutely. Absolutely. Not
0: even employer driven. It's the pharma manufacturers. They need a different way to go.
1: Yeah, Especially for these companies that are coming out with new products in in ultra orphan rare disease and even gene cell therapies, they have to think not only financially different, but who's really going to provide that supportive care that's needed in this rare disease population. And again, that's what we're seeing really shift in this marketplace, you know, steering and, and how we carve that out.
0: As Olivia Webb talked about at length in episode 337, she talked about how it's really tough to be a patient in the prototypical specialty pharmacy world, how she has to spend however many hours on the phone every month talking to this party, talking to that party. But as a patient, if you can't figure out how to even get the drug or you can't get questions answered or whatnot, the outcomes certainly aren't going to be as good. So is that sort of part of the equation here? It is. This
1: space is not easy. I think we're seeing also a disruption of how Mm -hmm. consumer empowerment is really being driven by technology and digital tools. Obviously with COVID, we've been kind of forced into telehealth, especially especially pharmacy cost savings alternatives effectively.
0: So in other words, specialty pharmacy patients could insist or demand or question why it doesn't exist, a telehealth solution, you know, like I don't need to necessarily go tromping down to the specialty pharmacy to have a nurse walk through some kind of med side effects. Is that kind of what you're saying?
1: I think overall, these type of digitalized companies are really addressing, you know, that total cost of lifestyle, behavioral um, modification. Working in this space, especially with TPAs, plan sponsors and mid-market health plans, I can tell you we're still lacking the overall insight to data.
0: Data. So, so we've been sort of digging into drivers of the trend to carve out SPP, specialty pharmacy benefits. And I'm getting that it's a little bit driven by pharma manufacturers, a little bit driven by consumers getting consumery. And now we're talking about employers having access to their data as, a, as another driver.
1: It all really goes down to when we start working with an entity, is trying to obtain them claim information data. It has to be good data. Do they have, you know, maybe a couple of brand drugs like Humira and Embryol that are equating to their high cost drivers. Maybe they just have one hemophilia claim. But again, it all starts of gaining insight to how you start that process. So when you have insight and good data, then you can start really driving the plan language and cover requirements that eliminate redundancy and conflicts across the medical and pharmacy benefits. So again, as I noted, plan design, what type of mandates do I put in place to maybe stop buying bill?
0: Well, let me just interject. So it's kind of interesting that I asked a question about patient experience and we immediately got into data, which, you know, frankly, comes up a lot in many conversations. And what also comes up a lot in many conversations is the difficulty that some plan sponsors have trying to pry the data out of the clenched fingers of some of these incumbent entities, like who just come up with all kinds of excuses why they cannot provide it. So effectively what you're what I'm understanding that you're you're saying here is without the data, you don't even know necessarily if there is a problem and you don't know necessarily where the spend is and you don't really know what needs incrementally improved.
1: You're right. It is a frustrating game because as you noted, the large PBMs that have traditionally managed maybe an employer's spend the last five, eight, 12 years doesn't give them the data that's needed.
0: If I was thinking about this really from the patient perspective, which is how I always tend to think about things, I could see that a point of alignment would be if pharma is either held to or offers outcomes based contracts, because then you have two entities who are working together to ensure that the patient has the best possible outcome, right, like pharma becomes an aligned party in making sure that the patient does well when taking the product at that point. What do you see going on relative to outcomes based contracts?
1: Yeah, this is an increasing area, especially now, especially drugs represent more than 50% of the total US drug spend. So, you know, we're seeing more focus around outcomes based contracting as a value based purchasing strategy used by payers to hold pharmaceutical companies responsible for ensuring that their drug perform according to expectations in a real-world patient setting. So again, what we're going to see is how to operationalize these uh, agreements is going to be key. Financial and clinical outcomes they must be able to, to compute is got to be quantifiable. So again, it, it, the importance of aligning reimbursement around value instead of volume.
0: Aligning around value instead of volume, you're saying. Another plus here, and I'm talking about this with Dr. Aaron Mitchell from the Drug Pricing Lab in a conversation coming up. But another advantage of aligning around value is that it helps pharma, maybe, get real about who actually is an appropriate patient for their drug. I'd really like to see them actively working to trade all of the wrong patients for more of the right patients.
1: The issue is, you know, how real is the data, right? Again, we're coming out with really new drugs in ultra orphan uh, disease, gene and cell therapies. You know, we still don't know a lot. So the real world clinical and financial outcomes got to drive and accelerate that value alignment.
0: I talk to multiple people a lot and uh, there's almost two camps. One camp says that there are lots of outcomes-based contracts that are currently in play. It's just nobody's reporting on them. So like that's one camp. And then the other camp is like, look, everybody's trying to do outcomes-based contracts. But to your point, no one can figure out how to operationalize them. Everybody wants to, but there's like rules and the pharma can't do this because of some reason and the, and the plan sponsor can't do that because of some reason. They just cannot align and then nobody can figure out how to get the data and then the side effects or the potential outcomes are like a year out. So what do you do? You wait for a year. You, you know what I mean? Like there's just so many challenges relative to trying to figure out what the value of the drug or the outcome that's, you know, like is it overall survival? Well, okay, then you got to wait the anticipated survival period.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. There are numerous, I call them OBC, outcomes-based contracting out there. You gotta look at the product and disease areas that these are in, you know, diabetes, hypertension, quantifiable, measurable metrics with large patient populations that can be tracked and based on cost and you know clinical outcomes. What this leads to, especially drugs, is we're seeing progress towards contractual arrangements. To me, it involves clinical and financial endpoint needs got to be continuously measured. And especially drugs is obviously challenging. I mean, I, I sit on a, a group called Value-Based Care Collaborative that's steer-headed by the Hemophilia Federation and Hemophilia Alliance. So there's about 40 payers, 40 advocacy groups or more. And we talk about value-based care arrangements. And especially, you know, you take a disease state like IVIG, those measurable, quantifiable data metrics are hard to grab. We're still very new at tracking this type of information on the specialty side. Now for diabetes and hypertension, cholesterol, for decades we've been tracking this stuff.
0: So for this value-based care collaboration that you're you're talking about, do you have 40 payers, 40 patient advocacy groups? Have you guys figured out a value-based contract? Or again, is this just in the conversational stage and there really isn't any? I mean, I know for Cartese, there are risk-based contracts. Like if the CAR-T doesn't work, then the pharma manufacturer does not get paid. That seems like something that most, if not all of the CAR-T manufacturers are doing. Not that there's that many of them. But for the other specialty pharmacy drugs, again, is there actual pen to paper being put? Or is this something that people are just still talking about because the complexity is so difficult that they just can't figure it out yet?
1: We're seeing progress in this area. To me, these are different financial models that we're seeing in the market for these high cost therapies saying, hey, if we're gonna pay this much, then we need a clinical endpoint outcome. And if it do- that doesn't happen, then you know who's gonna flip the bill? Utilization uh, management techniques like reauthorization criteria based on improved clinical response to the drug. So if that doesn't happen, then X pharma company may flip the bill.
0: X pharma company may foot the bill and there's reauthorization criteria. Like if the patient isn't doing well, a second prior auth doesn't get approved, there's some kind of utilization management or prior auth criteria that assesses how well the patient is actually doing based on available data and things which are quantifiable in real time. So the question is not necessarily how much does the drug cost, net, net. It's a question of how long is the therapy period? Or is that just one example of an outcomes-based contract and there's other ways to do this?
1: So, you know, Pfizer's recent announcement of their CAR-T program last year around, if it doesn't meet certain endpoints based on the clinical information provided and what is agreed upon, then Pfizer will pay the rest of the bill, right?
0: is it what we've got going on in the marketplace today? It's this all or nothing thing. Nobody is incrementally paying like, you know, if you achieve optimal results, I'll pay you your optimal price. If you're achieving 50% results, I'll pay you 50%. Like that is not going on. We're not there. No. Okay. Thanks. That's the answer to my question. So now let's move on to the dynamic between hospitals buying and billing and PBMs. As I mentioned earlier, there's a show with Eric Davis and, and Autumn Young Chu where we talk about exactly how hospitals have managed to get paid like six times the cost of some specialty pharmacy product. And considering the cost of these specialty pharmacy products, you can imagine what 6x that number is, right? So hospitals were getting, dare I say, really greedy. And then PBMs came back and they're like, hey, plan sponsors, like you're getting raked over the coals by this 6x that the hospitals are charging you. So we're going to control that spend and we're going to manage these specialty pharmacy products. Enter the age of white bagging. This causes all kinds of issues, both clinically and then also PBMs are like, hoo, I see blue sky profit here. If I can charge anything less than 6x the cost of the specialty pharmacy, I'm still cheaper than the hospital. So, you know, there is a huge incentive to keep charging more and more and more because the bar is pretty high or pretty low, I guess is the case, maybe. So PBM started getting greedy then enter other players who realize now there's market share that can be taken from the PBMs because their prices are too high, right? So one of the things that hospitals have started to do to compete against the PBMs that are doing the white bagging and stealing that 6x revenue is set up their own specialty pharmacies inside the hospital. What do you see going on there. It seems to be a really common trend. Every time I look around, there's another hospital that's setting up their own specialty pharmacy. Are those specialty pharmacies, are they contracting with the big PBMs, which control 80% of the market? Or are they primarily working with a 20%? If I was a giant PBM, why would I be interested in working with a hospital-based specialty pharmacy? Or is it just the case that now they're both like splitting the dough? How does the revenue model work there?
1: Yeah, so this is probably in the early 2000s where these health systems, I call it mid-tier or up, mid-level hospital systems, Sumacare, ProMedica, A-Trinity, and ashner they all now have some level of capability build out around specialty pharmacy. That means where it's not holistically a true specialty pharmacy service model that they have access to all the drugs, manufacturers will not do that. So I may be a hospital down the street where I've said, hey, I have a large number of neurologists I own. I'm going to start my own specialty pharmacy around there because I own my provider groups. We started to really see seeing this trend of specialty pharmacy ownership because of the hospitals owning now 65 percent of physician groups so it's market ownership and they're owning a piece of that pie and even getting smart to work around the buy and bill mandates by these hospitals starting their own specialty pharmacy mid-level hospital systems will definitely contract with mid-level vendors like ourselves to expand and enhance our service offering as a white label, to contracting directly with ESI and negotiated rates, where they all make a little bit of extra cash, but maybe come upon a an agreeable fee structure that's not going to mark it up six times. A great case example of this, uh, last year, especially when Q4 hits, a lot of products start hitting stop-loss rangers. So we had a TPA call us on a Tepeza case, a recently launched product that was being billed through the hospital outpatient facility. The bill for this employer group was going to be $1.4 million. What we ended up doing, because the TPA worked with us in the planned language, it resided on the medical benefit, so we carved that out to us. We actually found an amateur infusion center down the street that allowed us to white bag that product in. So we coordinated that care, got a hold of the member, worked with the TPA employer plan sponsor, and steered and coordinated care to that patient being fused at the amateur infusion center, where we white bagged the product in and shaved off over $954,000. The CFO of that TPA called me said, how? How is this happening? This is crazy cost. If I didn't know you guys were out there, I probably would have paid a $1.4 million that was going on with the big box PBR. Ridiculous amount of money being paid.
0: Interestingly, Eric Davis in episode 370 had a very similar example with similar, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars being saved just by closely managing one claim. One claim, one time. (laughs) So if I'm a hospital and I stand up my own specialty pharmacy in-house, you know, there's a couple of different ways I could do that. One of the ways would be that I white label like ESI, Express Scripts, is, you know, one of their, I don't know what you call it, a product, is that they go around to hospitals and say like, hey, we'll operationalize a hospital specialty pharmacy for you. We'll set up what amounts to an ESI specialty pharmacy in your hospital, but we'll share profits or whatever is going on there, right? Like that's one way to do it, which would work great, I would assume for all of the ESI patients. But like if I'm a patient and I have Optum or some other PBM, then does my hospital pharmacy become not preferred?
1: It's all dependent on the benefit design. So that's where we're seeing a new trend with health systems like Kettering to Trinity and all these other mid market kind of health systems saying for me to compete, I got to create a ecosystem of revenue scale. Within my own health system, I got to build out my specialty pharmacy capability. That's the biggest trend. And my infusion network, you know, I got to build infusion capabilities to the community. I mean, if you saw the recent announcement by Amerisports Bergen, they have now launched an infusion community program with hospital systems. Because again, this is a huge focus. It's a no-brainer. Infusion drugs still are very profitable on a gross profit margin perspective.
0: What is an infusion network? What does that mean? Like building out an infusion network? Do you mean that? there are so many plans that are not, allowing buy-in bill in the hospital setting because as aforementioned, the 6X business. So they're saying, oh, you have to get infused in an ASC, an ambulatory surgical center, an infusion center, which is off premises. And therefore, the hospitals are losing all of that revenue or the payers themselves are setting up ASCs. Just heard that one. So the hospitals are like, well, I got to stand up my own ambulatory service centers and maybe not make 6X, maybe I'll just make 2X, but I won't get zero.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're trying to control the geographical market scale that they want to do. So they're looking at how do I go 50 miles outside of my hospital radius to control my infusion community, right? You know, infusion drugs. If I get a member that requires an infusion, I don't lose it to Walgreens. I never see that member again or product margin, right? So they they want to control that. That's where they're scaling this out themselves. Or I would say 85% of most hospitals are trying to find vendor alternatives and partners to do this because they can't do it themselves. And it's in line to building amateur infusion centers or their own provider groups that have infusion chairs. There's a large neurology group out of Detroit that has like 26 chairs in their practice. So again, there's opportunity to scale that from a revenue side with hospitals that that say may own those physician groups.
0: So that example that you gave where a $1.4 million claim went down $950,000, right? Like you could say that the PBM lost that money for sure, but under other circumstances, it could be the hospital that lost that money. So like just... When the cost went down, all these incumbent players could look at that like millions of dollars just got taken out of their checkbook. Why would a hospital system be interested in enabling that money to get saved?
1: Because if they realize, you know, if they don't play ball in certain uh, sectors and a great example is we're seeing these hospitals now go direct to their local employer group. So, you know, Mike's auto body down the street. I'm going to try and drive a benefit design plan with them instead of them going to say an anthem to control maybe certain fusion drugs. We can do it better. We can do it cheaper. And here's a better rate. So they realize that maybe marking this up six times is not a good strategy of revenue scale, they're gonna eventually lose it. So they're having for their barging control to, to, to save face on these because they wanna grow their market. That's a shift we're seeing direct to employer groups. And vice versa, employer groups are going to their localized, regionalized hospital system saying, hey, can you save me money, say in Zogesma? If I steer any member that I get a Zogesma claim, can I go through here and we have an agreed upon fee structure? or total bill, right? So again, we see different vendor alternatives negotiating with hospitals saying for this type of service therapy product, I got to have a set fee total cost of care maybe is this. So we're seeing more and more of those and and everyone still makes money. It's just not six times markup.
0: And it sounds like if I'm a hospital and if a patient comes in and that patient's plan allows for buy and bill, I'm going to do the buy and bill thing. I'm going to make my 6x or whatever it is. I'm just using that as as an example that came out in a study the other day. Link in the show notes. Yep. So it sounds like it's this is really up to an employer sponsor to get a handle on this because the hospital is going to do whatever the profit maximizing thing is for the hospital. And so is the PBM. So if I do not, if I as an employer sponsor, I'm not right on top of this, I'm either going to get billed 6x by the hospital, possibly, or I'm going to be charged 1.4 million by the PBM. You know what I mean? Like, whatever, pick your poison. <laughs> so that's what an uninformed, not managing this at all employer sponsor, that's what's going to happen to them. However, if the plan sponsor is like right on top of this, Then what might happen is the hospital system would say, oh, we've got these ambulatory infusion centers. So plan sponsor, you can send your patient over there and it's going to be much more reasonably priced. Or they say, oh, right, you can get the drug at our hospital pharmacy. We can gold bag it or white bag it in and it will be much less. Listen to the show with Keith Hartman on all the different kinds of pharmacy bagging. So like they have their lower cost alternative for those active plan sponsors who are looking to control costs right? Like, so they have this alternative that they will offer if someone is so inclined.
1: Correct. There are numerous alternative providers now coming up to increase that transparency to plan sponsors to help lower these kinds of prescription especially drug costs or, or spend as you term. We're seeing different coalitions like the Health Transformation Alliance covering 6 million lives get into achieving greater transparency on their specialty drug costs.
0: And currently that's about 20% of the market, it sounds like. Yep. Got it. Although growing, because this is just such a huge shock, (laughs) both figuratively and literally, if we're talking about a shock claim here, that even the most unengaged plan sponsor could raise someone's eyebrows. Yeah, well,
1: you know, what's interesting with the the rare disease, especially pharmacy pipeline is it's rising so quickly. I mean, in the early 2000s, the average cost for hemophilia based on how they dosed was around $175,000. Now, because, you know, they dose differently, it's prophylactic. The average cost for hemophilia claim for any employer is over $600,000. So overnight, if I have a hemophilia member, you know, he's 26 year old and playing maybe dodgeball and has a muscle bleed that night and goes to the ER overnight by 8 a.m. I have a million dollar claim to address. So again, these are real scenarios that are happening in the self-insured plant sponsor market.
0: That's something right there that I would, in fact, need to get ahead of. Because if that hemophilia patient goes to the ER, I I just got buy and build. Is there anything I neglected to ask you, Mike, that you want to mention?
1: Employers really should start recognizing organizations that take more of an integrated and thoughtful approach based on member care and soft uh, savings. The best way to me to manage special costs, also improving outcomes is with integrated approach that leverages clinically sound decisions. Besides sophisticated data analytics and digital infrastructure, that's gonna be the, the thing that puts the patient support system first and eliminates waste and ensures appropriate utilization in this area.
0: Well, this might be a good time to ask you where people can learn more information about Acela Health, should they be interested.
1: We just you know have an array of resources on our webpage at excelhealth.com
0: And we will put links to those resources in the show notes. Mike Baldziki thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today.